God, we pause and we submit ourselves to you. God, we thank you for uh, this morning. God, we thank you for a chance to gather with other believers in the family of God to declare the praise of your name. And God, as we turn to your word, God, we pray that the Spirit of Christ would use the words of Christ to conform us to the image of Christ. So Lord, would you use your word to prevail over unbelief today? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On April 14th, 1912, the Titanic struck an iceberg and was swallowed up in the icy waters of the North Atlantic. Over 1,500 people died as the ship that not even God could sink sank. Only about a third of the passengers lived to tell of the nightmare. And although the tragedy is great when you think about the death toll, there's a greater tragedy when you think about how many more people could have been rescued. The Titanic was certified to offer lifeboat space to over 1,200 people, and yet 40% of the total lifeboat spaces remained unfilled. That months later, as investigators sought to understand why was this the case, they came across two startling misperceptions. The first was that some of the crewmen of the Titanic actually believed that if you filled these lifeboats to full capacity, that during the lowering process, the, ship, the ships would have broken in two. And the second reason, the one that I want to highlight this morning, is that some of the passengers on board of the Titanic were reluctant to board the lifeboats because they didn't feel there was an urgent need. That after all, this was the ship that was supposedly unsinkable. And as far as the Titanic goes, and obviously just a great tragedy, as it relates to the church of Jesus Christ, as it relates to our assignment with the Great Commission to go and make disciples, to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who have spiritually drowned, I wonder if the same assessment could be true of us. I wonder if our lack of evangelism, our lack of taking really the Great Commission seriously is due to the fact that we have a lack of urgency in our churches. You all know the the statistics. They're very well known about our lack of evangelism, that 90% of Christians will never experience actually leading someone to Jesus, that over 50% of Christians in the last year didn't even share their faith with an unbeliever, that 75% of Christians do not consistently share their faith with an unbeliever. It's true that we have an evangelism problem in the life of the church. And yeah, I know what some of us are thinking right now. Some of us are probably thinking, okay, here's another message on evangelism and why I'm so bad at it. Here's another message on evangelism that's going to be guilt-driven. I know that's what some of us are thinking. And yet, what I want us to see this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is that Paul lays out for us theological reasons that are rooted in God and not in our guilt that actually leads to having a sense of urgency as it relates to evangelism. That my hope and my prayer for this morning is that there's a a mindset shift in the life of our church. That we go from thinking that we're on board of of a Titanic cruise ship, living the life of ease and comfort, to believing that Christ rescued us 
who drowned in our sin and put us in a lifeboat, and now our assignment is to point out others who have spiritually drowned in their sin. My hope is by looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we would have this, this sense of urgency as it relates to evangelism. And so how do we attain this level of urgency? How do we understand that this is our assignment from God to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who have never heard it? I would argue it's recovering. It's by recovering theological reasons why we must share the gospel. So in our passage this morning, Paul is writing a letter to a very troubled church. We see the carnality of these people in this seaport city in the first century. Uh, this is Paul writing to, to the Corinthians who were struggling with immorality, with rivalries, with extreme conflict. There was controversy going on even in this congregation as to why Paul is even writing to them. That there were people in this congregation who were doubting the apostleship of Paul. They were doubting his credentials. They were doubting whether or not he had the signs and the powers to actually be an apostle they were calling him things like he was weak, he was fickle, that he can't even make up his mind whether or not he's actually going to visit us or not. And so Paul writes this second letter to the Corinthians on one hand defending himself, but he's defending himself by pointing out the mission that God had given him, this mission of reconciliation, this message of the gospel. And what strikes me about our passage this morning is not how clear Paul makes the message of reconciliation. It's not how clear he lays out the gospel. He does that elsewhere throughout his letters. But what strikes me about this passage is how clear Paul's, Paul lays out his motives for why he engaged in the work of evangelism. And so as we move through our passage today, I want us to see three different sections in our passage that the first section in verses 11 through 15 have to do with the motives of Paul's ministry, the motives. Why did Paul evangelize? And then the second section, we'll look at verses 16 through 20, and we'll look at the manner of Paul's ministry, the manner of Paul's ministry. And then verse 21, we'll look at Paul's message, Paul's message in his ministry. And so let's take a look first at the motives of his ministry. We'll start in verse 11 here. Paul says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. That Paul says we persuade others to be reconciled to God, or it could be translated, we're trying to win people over. That this word persuade shows up all throughout Paul's letters Acts 17, verse 2, we see Paul proclaiming the gospel in the synagogue in Thessalonica, and he says this. He says, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. That Paul persuaded others. He did this because of the fear of the Lord. And so our first motive that Paul points out is the fear of the Lord. But how is the fear of the Lord produced in our lives? What does the fear of the Lord actually mean? Well, the fear of the Lord refers to a consciousness. It's an awareness of God with respect and awe in such a way that it actually impacts how we live. 
That the fear of the Lord is not this dreadful, unhealthy fear of God because Paul knows that his sins are forgiven. He knows that there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But this fear is connected to the accountability that all believers must give to the Lord. In fact, this word, therefore, that begins our passage in verse 11 helps answer the question, how is this produced in our lives? That Paul uses the word, therefore, to connect our passage with verses 9 and 10. He says this, he says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So what Paul is declaring is that he makes it his aim to please God. And the reason why he makes it his aim to please God is because the judgment seat of Christ is real. He's saying that believers will stand before the Lord and will have to give an account. It'll be an evaluation, not not in the sense of condemnation, but we'll have to give an account on the things that we've done, the things that we've said, our, our thought life, our motives. And so Paul is saying, because the judgment is real, I have this healthy fear of the Lord that is propelling me into evangelizing. Paul goes on to say, in verse 11, that what we are is known to God. That Paul understands that if his whole life will be revealed before the judgment seat of Christ, then his ministry stands revealed to God now. Does this die on me? Are we good? Okay. All right. His life is open and known by God. Look at verse 12 here. Paul starts to kind of defend himself to the Corinthians, and he calls to mind the character of his ministry. He says, we, we minister to you out of our heart with sincerity and genuineness. And this passage for me was, was really convicting. When, when I stopped and, and I thought about the judgment seat of Christ, when I stopped and I thought about, man, do I have this healthy fear in my own life? That the Holy Spirit just started to convict me because for me, when, when I think about the judgment seat of Christ, I tend to only think about the things that I've said and the things that I've done and not always the things that I haven't done and the things that I haven't said. That when I think about standing before Christ, I only think about the sins of commission and not always the sins of omission. Specifically, those opportunities that the Lord has given me to share the gospel that, that, I've, that I've rejected because of fear or because I'm too busy, or because I don't know what to say, whatever the reason is. And so the Lord was just convicting me that I will have to give an account of my life, of even of all the things that I haven't said or done in the area of evangelism. This is a stunning and sobering reality that believers will have to give an account before the Lord over the things that we've done, and even the things that we haven't done, that the Lord has provided an opportunity for us to walk into. So how does that, how does that sit with you this morning? Just that thought, that, that picture, that you have to stand before the Lord and give an account. And what does your relationship look like with fear, a healthy fear of the Lord? What, what does that look like for you? I know for me, I, I tend to only think about fear in an unhealthy way, and yet Paul clearly states that there is a healthy fear of the Lord that results in a motivation for evangelism. 
So not only that, not only do we have a healthy fear of the Lord that creates this sense of urgency, but Paul implicitly in verse 13 points out another motivation. This motivation is a love and a concern for others. Look at verse 13. Paul says, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. That implicitly here in this verse, we see another motivation of having a love and a concern for others. And the word for that begins verse 13 is used to further explain Paul's ministry. He says that with God, I am beside myself, but with you, I am in my right mind. Now what this means to be beside himself or to be out of his mind, Paul's referring to his private vertical interaction with God. He says, I was out of my mind. Now, some people believe that this was a reference to Paul speaking in tongues. Others believe that it's Paul uh, talking about being caught up in paradise, something that he refers to in chapter 12, verse 4. I'll let you do the homework on that. But I want you to, to think about the second half of this verse, that Paul says, but to you, I was in my right mind, that that was for your benefit that I was self-controlled, that I was clear, that I had such a concern for you that I wanted my ministry to be absolutely clear, to be self-controlled to such a degree that you would believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Paul wanted to remove all the barriers for them to believe in the gospel because he had a concern for them. Now, this is a good word for us, that as we share the gospel with others, let it be, if they reject the gospel, let it be because of the offense of the gospel and not because of our personalities, not because we're annoying or not because we didn't make the gospel message clear. Let it be because the gospel offends and not because of us. That Paul's concern and love for others drove him to sharing the gospel with urgency. We see this all throughout the letters of Paul. 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about that he made himself a slave in order to win more of them to Christ. That he said, I became all things to all people that I might save some. That Paul's love and concern for others led him and drove him to persuade others to believe in the gospel. Does your love, does your concern for others drive you to sharing the gospel with the lost people around you. And did you know that the best way that we can actually love the lost is by sharing the gospel with them? And I just wonder, could it be that our lack of evangelism, our lack of trying to persuade others to believe in Jesus, could it be because we have a lack of compassion for others? Penn Jillette, who's a famous magician and comedian, also uh, a very famous atheist, posted a video on YouTube a few years ago, and he explains this encounter that he had with a believer. It's a fascinating video. He, he uh, recounts this encounter that he had with this Christian man who gave him a Bible, and Penn Jillette was just blown away about how loving this Christian man was, how nice and courteous he was, how clear the gospel message was as he explained the beauty of Jesus. It didn't lead to Penn's conversion, but in the video, Penn, who's an atheist, makes a very profound statement. He says this, he says, 
how much do you have to hate somebody to believe in everlasting life is possible and not to tell them that? He says the excuse for not evangelizing, the excuse of, well, it, it might make it socially awkward. He says, I find ridiculous. This is an atheist. He says, if you believed a truck was going to hit somebody, but you didn't believe the warning, there would come a certain point where that person would tackle you in order to save you. He says, forget being socially awkward. If someone is going to die, do whatever you can to get them out of danger. Penn even admits warning someone about the danger of hell is even more important than warning someone about being hit by a truck. The implication is, is that if you would tackle someone who's about ready to be hit by a truck, why wouldn't you at least risk some social embarrassment to warn others about hell? Do you see the connection that even this atheist makes about if you truly love the lost, it will lead you to sharing the gospel with them? And I just wonder, I wonder if the reason why we don't have a sense of urgency as it relates to evangelism, I wonder what the root issue is. I mean, we know all the symptoms. We know all the reasons that you and I give for why we don't evangelize. You know, we say, well, I don't know how, or I don't know enough theology, or I'm an introvert, or I don't know any non-Christians. Or, or I'm too busy to evangelize. Whatever the reasons are that we give, I would argue that those are just symptoms and that the root issue that I would argue is a lack of compassion. It's a lack of concern for the loss. It's, it's, it's basically that we don't care enough. That if we claim to have the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves sinners. It will result in us loving them to the point where we will share the gospel of Jesus Christ consistently. And we cannot be a church known in this community to be a church of love if we're not also known for being a church that evangelizes. So having a true love and concern for others will lead to sharing the gospel with them as Paul demonstrated throughout his ministry. Well, not only that, not only is there a healthy fear of the Lord that Paul explains, not only is there a love for others, but the third motive that Paul points out is the love of Christ. Look with me at verse 14, the love of Christ. He says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And Paul goes on to say in verse 15 that Christ's love controls or restrains him to such a degree that he no longer lives for himself, but for Christ who died for him and was raised. And so if the first motive, this healthy fear of the Lord, views Jesus as judge, this motive, the love of Christ, views Jesus as Savior. Paul explains in verse 14 that the reason Christ's love controls him it's because he became convinced that Jesus Christ died for all. And the meaning of the phrase, therefore all have died, this refers to the fact that all have sinned. And because all have sinned, all have died as our consequence is death. So therefore, Paul says, all have died, and yet Jesus died for all. And this reality, the fact that Christ has died for the sins of the world, 
drove Paul to persuading others. What an awe-inspiring reality when you think about it. What an incredible truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down and he died in the place of wretched sinners. And he not only died in the place of wretched sinners, but he provided a righteousness that is transferred to our account if we believe in him. Just, just think about that reality. That is an incredible truth. And, and I wonder, I just, I just wonder how many of us, as we're sharing the gospel with people, as we're, as we're sharing the gospel even during family devotions with, with our family, as we're thinking about the gospel in our own personal time in the Word, as we're, as we're singing songs of the gospel on Sunday morning, I wonder how many of us are just struck with the thought of, it's all true. It's all true that God, the infinite God, creator, holy, righteous God, stepped down into humanity 2,000 years ago, took on the form of a slave, died in the place of sinners, was raised back to life three days later, and now offers us salvation. Think about that. It's all true. And so my question for us is, does the gospel lead to a sense of awe and wonder in your life? That the gospel is not just something that, that we received the gospel is not just something that we heard about. The gospel is not just something that we accepted at the point of conversion. And, and then we take that gospel and, and we put it in a box and we put it on the shelf in our heart somewhere and, and we only need it when we're trying to convert others. No, no, no. The gospel is the air that we breathe as believers. And what Paul demonstrates for us in this passage is that the love of Christ, the, the very gospel has created such exuberance in his life, such joy that it propelled him and controlled him to try and persuade others to believe in it. So how much of your life, how much of your heart is filled with the beautiful story of the gospel that you consistently rehearse over and over and over again? That you're rehearsing the gospel so much to the point that when God opens up an opportunity for you to, to share the gospel with someone, that you walk into that opportunity naturally, that you walk into that opportunity and the gospel and the love of Christ just kind of oozes out of you because you're thinking about it, because you're meditating on it, because you just can't get over the fact that Jesus died for you. And I know in my own life that the love of Christ is such a powerful motivation for evangelism. And it's so much better than the motivation of guilt, isn't it? I mean, I know for me, I, I struggle with having a guilt-driven evangelism. I, I think to myself, man, you know, good Christians evangelize, therefore I'm not a good Christian. And so I find myself sharing the gospel because of this guilt that I don't do it more often. And yet, the love of Christ is such a more powerful and better tool as, as far as serving as a motivation for us to share the gospel because the love of Christ reminds us that we're not perfect, that we're not experts in evangelism, but Jesus is. And so the love of Christ frees us from that guilt, and it fills us with that love that drives us and propels us to sharing the gospel with others. And we see this principle in other areas of our life, don't we? 
I mean, after you watch a good movie, what tends to happen? You tell your friends about it, right? If you have a good meal at a restaurant or you listen to a new song that you really enjoy, you tell your family members about it. You tell your friends about it. So why don't we do this with the love of Christ? Why aren't we more consumed with the gospel that that leads us to sharing the hope, the good news with others? And Paul was driven because of the love of Christ. So the motives, again, is the fear of the Lord, a love and concern for others, and the love of Christ. Well, not only do we see the motives of Paul's ministry, but we also see the manner of his ministry in verses 16 through 20. So Paul not only explains the why of his ministry, but he also explains the how. And the word that I want you to, to focus on is urgency as we move through these verses. Paul, Paul had a sense of urgency that shaped the manner of his ministry. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. <clears throat> he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So Paul says, from now on, therefore, in other words, because the love of Christ controls us, because Jesus has died for us, we regard no one according to the flesh. Now, what this could mean is that Paul is saying we we, we view others no longer from a worldly perspective. That because we are a new creation in Christ, we don't view other people the way that the world views them. That we have a gospel lens that shapes the manner of our ministry. In verse 18, Paul says, all this is from God. That the this is pointing back to being a new creation. That the old is gone and the new has come. And in verses 18 and 19, Paul explains why this reality of being a new creation is even possible. He says it's because Christ initiated the reconciliation process where he died for the sins of the world. But notice Paul's tone here. He says, all this is from God. It's almost like Paul can barely believe the reality that Christ not only saved him from his sins, But God has given him the ministry of reconciliation to extend to other sinners. Paul can barely believe this. He's saying, all this is from God. And in verse 20, he says, and now God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that we are ambassadors for him, that God is making his appeal through us. This is part of the reason why One of our core values here at College Park Church is the call to go. That we believe here at College Park Church that the call to go means that every believer is an ambassador for Christ. That the call to go is the call to go and take the gospel to those that haven't heard about the glory of Jesus. And we believe that that's not optional for believers. That's not a suggestion for us. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you are an ambassador of Christ. And so that's a core value for us at College Park Church. Now look at with me at verse 20. Paul says, "Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, 
God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Notice the manner of Paul's ministry all throughout this passage. He's trying to persuade others. He's trying to appeal to others. He's trying to implore that there's this sense of urgency in the Apostle Paul that shaped the manner of his ministry. Now in verse 20, he does three things in this verse. First, Paul declares that all who are followers of Jesus are ambassadors for Christ. And second, he claims that God is speaking through him and is appealing through him to others. And then third, Paul is appealing to the Corinthians to be reconciled with God, something that they profess to be. And this truth that we are ambassadors for Christ should shape the manner of our ministry. That as Paul wrote this, everybody would have understood what an ambassador was. That an ambassador in Paul's day was not the prize or the reward for your top political donor. But in Paul's day, an ambassador was someone who was called to to go to some area of the empire with a message from the government that sent them. And so whatever the ambassador said, he is representing the government that sent them. And so the ambassador would say, we, we want to make a treaty with you, or we're, we're going to go to war with you, or we're going to destroy you. What, whatever the ambassador said, he's representing the government that sent him. And everybody would have understood that. So Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, and yet even more, it is God who is making his appeal through us. That's an amazing, amazing reality. And do you have the sense that as you're sharing the gospel with your coworker over lunch, if you're sharing the gospel with, with people in your neighborhood or, or with the barista at Starbucks, that as you're sharing the gospel, do you have the sense that it is Christ who is speaking through you? That Christ is present with you? That that reality should shape the manner of your ministry with a sense of, of urgency. Paul says, I implore you, I beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled. It's almost like he's saying, I'm begging you as though Christ is begging through me, be reconciled. I had the opportunity a few weeks ago at Panera to to share the gospel with a worker there. And uh, Panera is a place that I frequent. And so this gentleman who sees me there every week studying the Bible, talking about church, just came up to me. And he said, are, are you a pastor? And I said, yeah, I am. And he said, I've, I've always wanted to ask pastors this, but why did you become a pastor? How, how, did, how did that happen? What did that process look like? And, and so I had just an amazing opportunity to, to talk about how Jesus saved me and talk about the gospel message, how I was an enemy of God, and, and I just talked about the beauty of the cross. And he's looking at me just, just with, with confusion almost. So I asked him the question, I said, have you, have you heard this before? Have you, have you received the good news of Jesus Christ? And, and he said, I, I don't know, maybe. Maybe when I was a little kid, when I used to go to church, and, and I had this, this sense of, of kind of urgency kind of well up within me. I said, well, do do you want to receive Jesus right now? Do, do you want to become a follower of Jesus? Do you want to be rescued from your sin? And, and he responded with, well, 
I don't know. Let me, let me think about it. You know, I see you in here often. Maybe we can talk later about this. I got to get back to work. And so my response, and it's hard to confess this, but my response was, okay. Okay, yeah, we, we can talk later. And he went and, and he walked away, went back to work. And I sat there with my Bible open. And I felt, I felt this conviction from the Holy Spirit because I should have said, you're not guaranteed tomorrow. I should have said, you're not guaranteed another hour of your life. I, I should have responded with, with more of a sense of urgency. And I, I just felt this, this conviction because I was so lackadaisical with the gospel message. I, I should have just called for a more direct response. And so I'm just confessing that to you that, that not, not every time are we as followers of Jesus just hitting this out of the ballpark and we're relying on the Holy Spirit to take the gospel message and do what only God can do. But if we understand that, that we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ, that God is making an appeal through us, it's going to give us a sense of urgency. And yet, we're not going to treat the people that we're sharing the gospel with as if they're our clients. And we're the salespeople. We're, we're trying to make a pitch to them to buy the product of Jesus. That's not our posture we're not trying to angle the conversation and, and manipulate and pressure and, and try to twist their arm to, to bind the product of Christ. See, that, that comes across as, as being very cold. It comes across as, as the unbeliever feeling like, like a project instead of like a person. And so our posture and the manner of our ministry needs to be shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ being one of love and yet with urgency. And that's what we see in the Apostle Paul, that this reality shaped the manner of his ministry. So not only do we see the motives of Paul and the manner of Paul, but we see the message of Paul's ministry, the message of Paul's ministry in verse 21, this glorious verse. Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That this verse explains why we are reconciled to God. This verse sums up our message of reconciliation that Paul talks about the life of Christ, the person of Christ, the, the death of Christ. That Jesus lived a sinless life. And as Paul put it here, that he knew no sin. And so we're to understand this verse that the, the worth of Jesus' death on the cross, it arises from his sinless, perfect life. And that God's standard of acceptance is perfection. God's standard of accepting us is perfection. It's not having our good works outweigh more of our bad, but it's absolutely perfect righteousness. That's the only way God will accept us. And so the beauty of this verse shows us that Jesus gives us his righteousness, that we become the righteousness of God. And this is the beauty of the great exchange. This is the beauty of the gospel message that we give Jesus our sin. We give Jesus our guilt. And in exchange, he gives us his perfect righteousness, his perfection for those who put their faith upon him. What a deal! What a scandalous deal for us that we sinners 
would be declared righteous because of an alien righteous that is Christ. What a message that we get to proclaim to others. This is our message. It's not a works-based message. It's not good advice for bad people, but it's the good news for people who are dead in their sins. So that is our message in this ministry of evangelism. And so maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering, okay, Chris, all right, we, we got this. Okay, we, we need to participate in evangelism. I, I understand the motives. I understand the, the theological reasons why I need to have a sense of urgency. I understand the manner and the shape of the ministry. I, I understand the message. Now, now what do I do? How do I engage in, in evangelism? So I want to point out just five things as we, as we move to application here. Five things that you can immediately do as you walk out of here today. Here's number one. Pray for specific people. Pray for specific people. Don't just pray for people generally. Don't, don't just pray for your neighbor. Don't just pray for your coworker, but but introduce yourself and know their name. Know who they are and pray specifically for them that God would save them. And so by praying, by interceding, we are reminding ourselves that we are not the ones that save people, but it's God. It's the ministry of God who woos people to Jesus Christ. So number one, pray for specific people. Number two, build the bridge of relationships. Build the bridge of relationships. One of the most popular reasons why I believe we don't share the gospel is because we may not know unbelievers in our sphere of influence. It's so easy that when we come to faith in Christ, just to kind of remain in the bubble of Christianity. And so the only people in our sphere of influence are believers. And that's part of the reason why our congregational goal this year, by January 2017, is for each person to develop and establish one relationship with someone who doesn't know Jesus. Just one. And so my hope is that we have 400 relationships with unbelievers by 2017. Not, not 400 salvations, not 400 baptisms, just 400 relationships with those who don't know Jesus. Think about the impact that that would have on our community. 400 believers who extend themselves to people who don't know Jesus. Think about the impact that that would have on our church. And so build the bridge of relationships so you can share the gospel with them. And let me encourage you, just to be creative with this. I mentioned this before, but, but bake brownies for your neighbors or cookies and, and go over there and introduce yourself. Get to know them. Have them over for dinner. You know, have lunch with your coworkers. Talk to the people at the gym that, that you're rubbing shoulders with. Talk to your barista. Ask them how they're doing. Get to know their story. And I'd also encourage you to to create margin in your life. And this is really hard for us. Living in Fishers, we're on this very fast-paced lifestyle. And so for, for many of us, we, we don't always have the margin to develop another relationship. And so it takes margin in order for us to invest time and energy into developing this kind of relationship because it's inefficient. So make sure you're, you're making room for that to happen in your life. Number three here, is understand that it's not either come and see or go and tell, 
but it's come and see and go and tell. What I mean by this is that some churches believe that the philosophy of evangelism is either come and see, so bring all the unbelievers into the church where they can hear the gospel and be saved, or churches say, no, 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 we're going to go and tell, and that's our method of evangelism Monday through Saturday. And so what I want to propose for us this morning is that for us, it's going to be both. For us, it's, it's yes, come and see. Yes, bring unbelievers into this room because they're going to hear the gospel. They're going to be warmly welcomed. They're going to feel loved. They're going to feel like, like they, they have a sense of belonging here. And hopefully they respond to the gospel message. But also, we need to go and tell Monday through Saturday. We need to go and share the gospel. And that is everybody's responsibility as an ambassador for Christ. And so, come and see and go and tell. Number four here is meditate on the gospel. Meditate on the gospel. I've hit this already, but the point is, is that you cannot give what you do not have. You cannot extend to someone else what is not true in your own life. And, and so, maybe for some of us here, our application is, I need to establish a relationship with Jesus or, or I, need to, I need to think more about the gospel and, and make my heart warm to Jesus so that when I share the gospel, it doesn't come across as being cold or, 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 or like a, a robot. So meditate on the gospel. And then lastly here, number five, be bold. Be bold in sharing the gospel, that God in his grace and his mercy is providing opportunities, opportunities for us all around us to step into, to share the gospel with those who don't know Jesus. So be bold. Understand that it is Christ who is making his appeal through us, that Christ is speaking through us. So be bold and be clear as we extend the gospel of Jesus Christ to other people.